Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's turn our attention now to a program in the future. It may be a Donald Trump program, and it may come to you courtesy of Facebook. I want to bring in Joshua Green, our Washington correspondent for Bloomberg News. He is also the co-author of this week's cover story of Bloomberg Business Week, which is as much about the future of political campaigns as it is about marketing. Josh Green, thank you very much for being with us. Good to be with you. All right. So, I, in fact, there was a quote in the story where I believe a, someone you interviewed said, oh, yeah, you know, political campaigns are just like marketing campaigns. Yeah, my, my source, a uh, high-level uh, Trump official, likened it to selling burgers in a burger shop. That you, have to, you have to appeal to a wide audience and convince them that you got the right product, and doing that is the key to success. All right. I, I kind of pushed you ahead a little bit. I want you to step back, tell everybody what the story is about and why this is such an interesting look inside a political campaign. Well, I've been covering the, the Trump campaign the whole cycle, and during that time and speaking to a few senior Trump officials and members of the family, uh, they, they have said that contrary to the public perception the Trump's campaign is really just Trump and a Twitter feed. They actually have a pretty sophisticated uh, voter targeting and turnout operation that they built in San Antonio, Texas, of all places. Uh, so I appealed to them to let me uh, go down and, and, and check it out. And uh, along with my colleague, Sasha Eisenberg, we got exclusive access to Trump's digital operations for the cover story in this week's Business Week. So what did it look like in their, in their sort of campaign operations that could easily parlay into a media operation? It's like on what, what interstate? Is it I-40? Uh, I think it's 410 in San 410. Antonio. I beg your pardon. But, but so what it does it look like? like? I mean, to be honest, it looks yeah, like Yeah, I-410. Campaign. Yeah, any other campaign headquarters. You know, you've got uh, Trump signs everywhere. You've got a, a lot of, you know, young, eager um, – uh, kind of geeky-looking people, frankly. This is the digital operations. Uh, they also had a, a call center there uh, where the folks were a little older and tend to be carrying guns. Who's the and, guy that uh, looks like a martial, uh, mixed martial arts expert? This would be Brad Parscale, who is Trump's digital director and has a wild backstory. Uh, never been involved in politics before, but did make the Trump Foundation's website, also made Trump Winery's website. This is a guy who's in the Trump orbit. And as Trump cycled through various campaign staffers, Parscale uh, kept rising with each successive turnover to the point where he now runs the campaign's media budget and oversees a staff of about 100 volunteers, more people down in San Antonio than there are in Trump Tower, New York. So um, you said that they carry guns? Well, that was, that was you know, you, you don't usually see that at campaign headquarters. But remember, this is in Texas, in San Antonio, Texas. It's a Republican candidate, open carry, gun law, Second Amendment, big, big deal to voters down there. So, yeah, they have a, a volunteer call center where you call Trump's 800 number. They have volunteers answering the phone. And sure enough, the guy I started talking to, I looked down, and he has a gun hanging off his hip. I just, I just which, picked Which evidently he brings into work every day just in case, you know, somebody, I don't know, bum rushes him or something, and he feels the need to defend himself. But you wouldn't see that in, in a Hillary Clinton headquarters, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and frankly, I don't know if you go around uh, uh, San Antonio, you find a lot of people with guns just sort of hanging off them uh, either, despite the uh, free carry laws. But um, so where, what's the what's the end goal of this operation? I mean, it's obviously to get Donald Trump elected president, but uh, is there some sort of ambition lying underneath this that goes beyond the election? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, Jared Kushner's son-in-law is the one who really put together this organization after Trump won the nomination. You know, and up to that point, he really wasn't much more than just Trump in a Twitter feed. But I think Kushner recognized that, look, if we're going to run a presidential campaign, we need a serious small-dollar fundraising operation. Reached out to a lot of Silicon Valley marketers and essentially looked at it like a like like you would any ordinary business problem. Like we need to get customers in the door. Uh, so what they did was spend an awful lot of money, uh, some of which they they raised selling the Trump hats. They also had a bunch of auto pen machines down there signing Trump hats like full-time all day every day to sell to people. But they've used this this influx of money to essentially build a massive Facebook list of Trump supporters and donors, which, and this is key, because it was paid for with Trump campaign funds, Trump's campaign will own this after the election, win or lose, and could conceivably port it over to become the audience for, say, a Trump TV network or a Trump new media venture. So uh, as, as usual, Trump kind of has his eye, I think, on the bottom line, uh, regardless of, of what the outcome is on November 8th. Josh, could he also end up selling or at least uh, renting some of that information to the Republican National Committee? Is his operation more sophisticated than the GOP? Well, Yes and no. Uh, his list is bigger than the GOP's because it includes not only the RNC's information, which they handed over to Trump when he became the nominee, but also information that Trump's own campaign has managed to go out and harvest from commercial databases, from supporters. So he has a very big and very valuable list that strategists uh, w- would value anywhere between probably 50 and $100 million. Now, what what presidential campaigns typically do if they lose is they can license that to other candidates, other entities. You know, Mitt Romney has a list that, you know, he'll rent out to other Republicans to raise money. So Trump could, could do that. Um, but, but knowing Trump, there could also be broader commercial applications. And so he could really do any number of things with it. Thanks very much. Josh Green, he is our national correspondent, Bloomberg Business Week. The cover story, getting inside Bunker Trump. This is Bloomberg. We just can't stop saying that name. Uh, Today, Gannett dropped its $683 million bid for rival Tronk. Here with us to break down what this means for both companies going forward, why it failed, and everything else related to Tronk is Alex Sherman of Bloomberg News. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, How long is this segment? What are we, like four minutes? Can we just go back and forth saying Tronk? I'll say (laughs) Tronk, and then you can... uh, Please, you're speaking my language. Yeah, yeah, look, this is something that I've been following for months now. This is this is going to be a uh, Harvard case study on how not to do M and A. Um, Gannett came after Tronk a few months ago, offering twelve dollars and twenty five cents a share for Tronk. After just three months or so, after Tronk sold shares to uh, its new chairman Michael Farrow at eight dollars and seventy five cents a share. So it seemed like if Tronk felt like the value of its company was eight dollars and seventy five cents, or roughly in, in that ballpark. In February, then it should be certainly worth twelve twenty-five. Just three months or so later, and yet Michael Farrow said no. We feel like it drastically undervalues the company. So Gannett upped its bid to fifteen dollars a share, and still Tronk said no. This is not good enough. Simultaneously selling more shares to a billionaire, Patrick Sunchiang, for fifteen dollars a share. But the thinking there being that Patrick Sunchiang was going to participate in the growth strategy, which I want to talk about in a minute, of Tronk. So it's not worth it to just sell out. So Gannett went back to the drawing board and offered $18.75 a share, an enormous premium on a company that earlier this year was trading under $8 a share. 
But of course, it's in the hyper growth industry of newspapers. So no you, finally, yes, finally, the two sides reached a deal. Uh, and yet the financing was not there at $18.75. In other words, banks felt uncomfortable lending at that price because of the deteriorating businesses and potentially because of the banks that Gannett used in this case, which were PNC, SunTrust, Jefferies. These are not sort of your bulge bracket banks. And many of the sources I'm speaking to today have told me they, they think that if Gannett had used different banks, maybe this would have worked out differently. But in essence, this morning we learned that Gannett throwing in the towel so these two companies will operate as standalone entities. And the shares of Tronc down more than uh, 15.5% uh, currently, which basically they're trading about uh, $10, $10 a share. Uh, Tronc, the name, was supposed to, as you described earlier, have to do with Tribune online content. But it also is a term, if you happen to be in the British Isles, it describes the tip jar in a restaurant. In fact, there's the name of a person is called the trunk master, and that's the person that you know gets the tips and sort of pays out everybody this in the such establishment. such a pim detail. No, but the reason he I go there this. is because th this is not me saying this, is Mr. Farrow uh, who described it this way when they changed the name of the company. Are there pieces of trunk that really are worth a decent amount of money? Yeah, there's a reason why Gannett wanted to go after this, and they, they have a couple prize assets. They own the LA Times, that's probably the biggest prize, and they own the Chicago Tribune, which is another prize asset. Gannett owns USA Today, but after that, they don't own any large regional newspapers. So the, the feeling would be that there are a lot of potential synergies. The big newspapers could sort of funnel into USA Today. Who in L.A.? Is there an L.A. magnet? Is there a, a person in Los Angeles? Patrick Sunshion. Yeah, right. But, I mean, why not just have – because Jeff Bezos, wa uh, Correct. Washington why not Post? him? Just And in fact, from my understanding, that, that actually – that structure was in fact con contemplated here. But they had already gone so far down the road with sort of the, tr the transaction as is, meaning Gannett, Gannett buying Tronc. That in the days, the, in the recent days where this deal was coming apart, uh, it just seemed like it was sort of a non-starter from Tronk. So maybe this continues. Maybe, so he, maybe he comes in now and he says, OK, if, I if will. If Tronk can't push its stock price back up to at least $15 a share, look, Patrick Soon-Shiong himself is underwater Correct. significantly now because he bought in at 15 a share and the stock is currently under $10 a share. Tronk reports earnings later today, and certainly they're going to speak to what their go-forward strategy is, but I want to talk about what that might be. There is a video online, for people that have not seen this, where Tronk describes why they changed their name to Tronk, and I want to read you two sentences from this video so you will have an idea of what you will hear. This is from their chief digital officer, and Pim, as you pointed out, the whole strategy for Tronk is to go online. Here's the quote. One of the key ways we're going to harness the power of our journalism is to have an optimization group. This Tronc team will work with all of the local markets to harness the power of our local journalism, feed it into a funnel, and then optimize it so we reach the biggest global audience possible. So obvious. there it is. There's the strategy. Optimize, <laughs> feed no it into idea. a funnel. What, what, what does that, <laughs> that mean? That doesn't mean anything, Pim. Uh, it is I mean, a bunch of nonsense. The, so I have no idea what they're going to say well, today. Clearly the investors if it's just going to be buzzwords. Be, maybe, but, maybe journalists will all be like, 
put into a, a no, meat no. grinder. But this is also, tell me about the distribution that exists. Because as you said, there's got to be some value here for somebody that knows what they're doing. Sure. Look, the, the, the whole idea of, of newspapers going online, you can sell these so-called native ads and you can make a little bit more money by sort of building the ads right in to the uh, uh, content and having them well, can have charge sort of an editorial people for a subscription. slant. And of course, video ads that you can put online make a lot more money than sort of your display advertising. And you can go to a paywall and there's all sorts of things that have been tried. It, none of it really works. I mean, uh, you know, the, the newspaper industry continues to decline. The, the transition from print to online has certainly not been a flying success for any newspaper companies. Well, but I, that's, I was going to wonder, you know, is Trunk more valuable uh, is split into pieces, right? I mean, if somebody buys the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, rather than buying the whole thing and optimizing and funneling and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe, maybe. We'll have to see. Uh, you know, the, the idea here is the answer to that is no, according to Michael Farrow, that this company really is going to do something different than the rest of the newspaper industry. And therefore, it was worth it to refuse a takeout offer at 15 a share. But how much rope do they have here before shareholders revolt? Well, I was That's going to say be the big question. I was going to say just going to give you the the, the numbers, right? Because you always work off the off the sales, right? The numbers, right? So we're talking one point six is one point six billion dollar sales for the year, right? And you come out with net income of eighty million dollars. Right, net income of eighty million dollars. Yeah, exactly. on a on a one point six billion sale. Exactly. So that is not a strong business as is. Uh, and again, the the ideas that have been thrown around by the newspaper industry in general, this does not just speak, speak to Trunk, uh, have not been so compelling that there has been a wave of uh, you know euphoria in this industry. And in fact, the reason we see consolidation in the newspaper industry is the same reason we see it in so many industries. That in many ways, these companies have run out of ideas, and so if you consolidate, you can at least cut costs. And just look across the entire newspaper industry. When people talk about synergies, you know, everyone says, oh, that means layoffs. Well, in the newspaper industry, it's true. Certainly, these companies really tighten up. They've been doing it for years, and we just see continued layoffs, even at the big national newspapers. I want to thank you very much, Alex Sherman, as always, uh, our Bloomberg uh, Deals reporter, giving us the lowdown on Gannett walking away from an acquisition of Tronk. Pleasure, you know, when we get to talk to the CEO of a company, Synaptics, this one uh, particularly, it has a market cap of $1.8 billion based in San Jose, California. And you've probably interacted with many of their products because they are leaders in display driver technology. Rick Bergman is the chief executive, and he joins us now from our San Francisco studio, uh, home to 960, Bloomberg 960. Thank you very much uh, for being with us, Rick Bergman. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Okay, now tell me what's going on with, with Synaptics because you got to dial back to June. You were in talks, perhaps with a Chinese company about a takeover. The stock uh, is up today uh, substantially, but it's down about thirty-three percent so far uh, this year. Maybe just tell us a, a, a little, like six-month history of what's been going on at Synaptics. Well, of course, we're a major supplier to all the smartphone manufacturers, and a, a couple of them have had some stumbles over the past uh, six months, and kind of as they go, we go. Uh, but uh, based on our guidance and what we just announced uh, last week, uh, we're back in a healthy growth period again for the company. Does that mean that uh, smartphone uh, purchases are increasing faster than you've expected, or just that you got more contracts than you expected? What's that due to? 
Well, where we're seeing our growth is a, an area where we've really innovated, which is around integration. So uh, earlier you mentioned that we're in the display business, and we, we certainly are, but we're combining that actually with a touch controller. So when you touch your smartphone, that's, that's synaptics behind that technology, and we're combining those two and are really leading the industry in that particular area. Well, can you just expand a little bit more on what the strategy of the company is? Because I recall directly that um, in that uh, review that you gave, I believe, uh, in June, uh, you talked about that sizable revenue shortfall during the March quarter, and you said that that was going to carry into fiscal Q4. Well, we finished up our, our fiscal Q4, and, and, and certainly— uh, Did that come to fruition? Did that, is that what happened? Because you talked about the weak PC business as well. Well, we did have a, a weaker uh, Q4 now. For us, that was June. Uh, the September right. quarter we just uh, announced uh, was sequentially 19% growth uh, versus that Q4. So, is it, And then we guided to another 17% if you take our midpoint. So— so we feel we, we have the, the growth engines back on, on track for Synaptics. Earlier this year, uh, there was a Chinese buyer group uh, you're in active negotiations with to possibly uh, take over Synaptics. The shares are down more than 33% of Synaptics so far this year. Is that still on the table? Well, I can't uh, confirm or deny market speculations, and that's kind of been our stance for about a year now. Uh, and so we are focused on growing the company, as I said, and, and we're actively out there. We've been pretty open about that, about looking uh, for targets ourselves for M&A to allow us to, to uh, go forward with inorganic growth in the human interface area. What would be the natural thing to acquire? I mean, what would be um, a natural type of business that you would be interested in acquiring that would bolster your existing uh, platform? That's a great question. So as, as uh, we discussed, Synaptics is well known for our touch technology and also our, our display technology. So you kind of get the touching and, and seeing part of the human interface experience. So as you can imagine, we're also interested in things like uh, audio or voice or motion or uh, 3D Smell. gestures. Well, smells probably a ways out there, but uh, uh, we, we look at other technology, medical health technologies certainly also fall under that umbrella. Tell me about gross margins and how they are uh, performing at Synaptics. Well, as, a, as an American co company or semiconductor company, our margins are, are lower than what you see from other semiconductor companies. We made a strategic decision that we're going to comp compete in the consumer markets like smartphones or PCs. And that's how we're going to get growth and actually grow our earnings per share. What, th what that's me meant uh, over the last quarter is our gross margins have come down. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, conversely, is what's going up is, is our top line. You know, zooming out, you were talking about how Synaptics really relies on the smartphone industry. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, the industry is, is saturated, that it's not going to expand that much more. Anyone who wants a smartphone probably has one at this point. What's your take on this? Well, we have some great innovations coming, and when people talk about slow growth, it's still mid-single-digit uh, type of growth, and you're talking about a billion and a half smartphones per year sold. So if you just do the math, that's 100 million units of smartphones in addition each year that we can participate. And, we're, and our plan is to grow our footprint within that uh, smartphone market. We've added fingerprint sensors is a, another example where, where we've really grown our dollar contribution per phone. Rick Bergman, president and CEO of Synaptics. Thank you so much for being with us.
You know, Lisa Abramowitz, uh, the price of oil is trading higher by more than 8% right now on the New York NYMEX. This comes after a uh, an explosion uh, in the western Shelby County, Alabama. And this is a uh, pipeline that was uh, being worked on, and apparently it supplies a, a great deal of gasoline to the southeast. Uh, in fact, uh, this is a sort of major hub for, for um, a major transit point, I beg your pardon, for gasoline. And here to tell us about it is Laura Blewett, our own first word, Bloomberg First Word oil reporter. Laura, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us about this this pipeline, its connection to higher gas prices uh, in, in the southeast. Yes, absolutely. So this is the major artery shipping gasoline from the Gulf Coast refining hub into the main consuming hub in New York. Um, it the, the pipeline that was hit yesterday, it flows from Houston to Greensboro, North Carolina, and then there are some connecting lines that haul that fuel north to New York. So um, this explosion comes about uh, a six or seven weeks after another spill in September that shut the line for 12 days. Um, so um, they were working on the pipeline, working to um, make some repairs after that spill, and it looks like in the midst of that work, um, a track hoe was doing some um, digging, and it hit the line. And um, right now, um, Colonial Pipeline has shut down both of the main lines that ship gasoline and diesel up to the northeast. And I just want to correct myself. I believe I, uh, gasoline uh, is higher on the NYMEX. It is higher yeah. by more than 8%. Uh, right. dollar fifty-three a gallon right now on the NYMEX, up uh, eight and a quarter percent, I beg your pardon. Yeah, that was a flash jump yesterday on the news. Um, gasoline traders here in the U.S. that I speak to were up all night trading. Um, this looks like, at this point, it's all speculation, but this line could be shut down for several weeks, which would um, have a huge, huge impact on drivers in the Northeast and the um, Eastern Seaboard. Well, so, so pair this with the dynamic that's the opposite dynamic over in the Middle East, where it seems like perhaps OPEC will struggle to get uh, some agreement together on limiting uh, limiting output, um, and there is evidence that U.S. stockpiles are increasing. I mean, does this materially eat into those stockpiles and potentially uh, put a floor under oil prices regardless of an OPEC agreement? Yes, I think it would, actually, because um, at this point, um, the gasoline that's normally produced in the Houston area is going to be trapped down here in the Gulf Coast. So we're going to have less need for the crude supplies to process into gasoline. So um, we're going to see demand drop for oil in this area. We're already seeing some of the um, Louisiana light sweet um, crude going down um, because the demand is going to be lower. So, you know, it's interesting because oil, uh, West Texas oil uh, spot price right now does not appear uh, to be moving that much. It seems like both factors are kind of working at odds. I mean, how will this sort of work itself out? Which which one will win? <laughs> at this point, it looks like gasoline will win. Um, if you look at the, um, the price of gasoline relative to WTI, that has surged as well. And um, fundamentally, uh, this is the biggest issue in the U.S. that we've seen probably since Superstorm Sandy or Katrina. Um, so um, as Americans love to drive, you know, we're going to see that um, this is going to be driving the market in the next couple of weeks. And just to uh, to add uh, to uh, to your reporting, uh, Laura, uh, that uh, one person has been uh, killed and five others injured mm -hmm. in this uh, in this explosion. We don't know the fate of those uh, injured. Of course, uh, a terrible uh, accident. Is uh, is there any redundancy built into this system, Laura? Um, 
it's really a very, very important pipeline that um, we don't see too much um, redundancy, no. Um, there's another pipeline called the Plantation that supplies um, about half as much gasoline as Colonial. And um, there's some other um, U.S. laws that restrict um, barges or tankers from moving gasoline from Houston up to the Atlantic coast. So we're going to have to turn to Europe and other um, foreign um, origins for those supplies. Laura Blewett, Bloomberg First Word Oil Reporter. Thank you so much for being with us. This is something that we'll have to keep an eye on to see uh, how long it will take before this oil, this gasoline, uh, will continue to be pumped and how long it will take it to get it back online. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.